Everybody, welcome to our wonderful broadcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to greetings, our programs. Good to see you. We've missed you. And happy New Year. All that too. So we're entering. Um, we're we're about to enter the late part of the initial corporate war the shadow war and starting to get into the hot war right oh yeah the submarines are in the water getting nasty with each other i believe right around the corner is supposed to be the uh truce between otec and uh sino and yeah. then uh the boys in black and militech start uh duking it out and we have a a guest hey phil hey guys hey. And here is Phil joining us once again. Yes, indeed. Um, glad to be here. Sorry I'm late. No worries. We are glad to have you, pal. We just started. Yeah, you are just right <laughs> on time. Um, we didn't get to preamble you, but uh, kind of did that yourself just now. So, everybody, Phil McCracken. Indeed. Um, As always, I am Wisdom uh, with our host, uh, Will. Is Mr. Uh, Cyber Smiley. <laughs> yep. Welcome everybody. Um, so, you guys see any uh, interesting films, cyberpunk related, since our last break? I am. I am watching the uh, the final season of The Expanse and being blown away on a moment by moment basis. Oh, I would love to see that. I saw the first. I think it was the first four seasons. It it just gets better and better. Well, I say it gets better and better. Uh, season season five kind of slowed things down, but then it picked right back up. And we're, it, it's leading up to a very, to what looks like is going to be a very satisfactory ending, which will be a nice change of pace. I yeah, won't give no. you guys any spoilers. Yeah, I, no spoilers. I, I'm not throwing out any spoilers. I enjoyed there. it. Enjoyed it. Um there definitely was one thing that uh, was kind of uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to spoil it. Never mind. Oh, Anyways. I, I, I <laughs> cannot wait. I mean, outside of the proto-molecule, and of course you could add that in there, it was everything I thought of when I think of cyberpunk in space. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's the most perfect example of cyberpunk in space out there because it, it it takes things. It, well, I say that, but then there's artificial gravity, which fucks everything up. It's just hard to escape that. that really, you, you kind of have to have that because most no TV show is going to have the budget for people in space to be constantly floating around. They they do it enough on the expanse to remind you that it is artificial gravity. 
shit does happen. Uh, that's my only complaint, and it's it's like I said, it's not even really a valid complaint because we're constrained by the budgets of television. Actually, um, the artificial gravity is is interesting because it, yes, it, it looks like artificial gravity because everyone's standing on the floor, but there are definitely yeah, but they've got the well, boots yeah. they've got those little rings. scenes. And if you also notice how everybody has their hair tied up when they're in space. Yeah, you right? got to. So I think there's not necessarily artificial gravity. I think it's it's just a perception that they kind of mask in a very subtle way. Well, you didn't know? we do artificial gravity by using thrust? I mean, yeah, you got the tourist rings, but when the ship was in motion, didn't they use that to uh, create... Yeah. Some sort of uh, false gravity. They do. They do. Yeah. Like there's, like I said, they 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 address it, which is more than like ninety nine percent of shows out there do. Oh, yeah. uh, for most shows, the only time you ever are reminded that they're in space and that there's no gravity is as a plot device. Um, yeah, they just got their butts kicked and something went offline and everybody starts floating. Yeah, and it's almost immediately fixed and blah, it, like it lasts a couple of seconds and there's no real consequences. Whereas any time they lose gravity on the expanse, like shit's flying everywhere and people are getting like massively injured from debris and stuff. It's, the space battles in the expanse are so good. Yep. Uh, uh, there's actually two things I've seen. Not only did I see the expanse, but uh, in addition to that, I watched the movie Anon. Uh, <clears throat> basically, it's a, a detective story. However, it's kind of very cyberpunk in that everyone has a recording device in their heads. So huh. basically, cops can solve mysteries by looking at your recordings, which to me opens a whole ball, ball of or ball of wax around privacy and you know the whole big brother because now cops can just basically take recordings from your head and see exactly what you did when you did it and how you did it um but there is a small segment of population who are able to mask and kind of kind of like hackers um in which they erase it so the, the premise of the story is you know there's murders that are happening and the cops have no leads as to who's doing it because <clears throat> the killer hijacks the person's signal. So it kind of, kind of like, um, strange days. Nice. You know, um, but it was a very, it was an interesting movie. I think it's on, um, Netflix. And of course, the other cyberpunk-related movie was uh, The Matrix Four, which I enjoyed. I wouldn't say it was the best movie I've ever seen, but it's definitely it was enjoyable. Um, I mean, we're cyberpunk fans. We we have pretty low low expectations sometimes. <laughs> um, I haven't seen I haven't seen The Matrix Four yet. Uh, I don't really want to. Um, I'm not really sure why it got made. Uh, I will see it, it's, but... hmm? it, it's going to be seen as somewhat of a travesty but I'm actually not a great big fan of the Matrix. visually I love it but 
I think it's probably the most overrated cyberpunk media out there. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm probably gonna I'm probably gonna get some some hate on that, but that's that's just how I feel. Well, I'm gonna see The Matrix Four simply out of morbid curiosity. There is no like driving desire to hey, I want to really go see this movie because I think it's going to be so awesome. I want to see how much of a train wreck it is. I didn't that's think it was that big of a train wreck. Well, I don't know. I mean, and that's, hmm. you know... And again, you know, everyone has different opinions on, on what they watch, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's some movies... Like, I know my brother hated The Godfather. And to me, I'm like, how can you hate that masterpiece so everyone has different <laughs> tastes I fall asleep every time i watch it and that's somebody who <laughs> who loves the godfather but man it's it's a slow slow burn yeah. um it is uh, i'm not gonna say it's the most overrated movie ever but it is overrated uh people call it a perfect movie but it's it's not a perfect movie in yeah. my eyes a perfect movie is something everybody can watch um oh. That's, Raiders that's a... of the Lost Ark is a perfect movie. Uh, the original Richard Donner Superman is a perfect movie. Are they are they the most intellectually uh, stimulating movies out there? No, but everybody can watch them and everybody can enjoy them. That's a perfect movie. To me. Godfather's great, but I'll tell you what I enjoy watching more. Scarface, Goodfellas, movies where... It doesn't move along at a snail's pace. Mm. Um, I'm, yeah, I know. I'm gonna get hate mail for that too. <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> you know, everyone has the right to be wrong. <laughs> that is you true. know, even when I'm wrong, I'm right. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, so once I thought I thought I was mistaken. <laughs> so since our last podcast there hasn't been too much from Altor Surian. I know they've were always trying to get some uh, DLCs going. But I don't think there think, was too many that happened over uh the vacation. Not for us. I think they yeah. got something for the Witcher. Right. Um I mean honestly unless it's as as horrible as it is to say with the with this holiday season, unless it had to do with cyberpunk itself, I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. Um, but yeah, I think they did something with the Witcher, uh, especially to coincide with the TV series on Netflix, uh, getting its second season. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't recall seeing anything else. Um, yep. So it has been coming. Oh, overall. Yeah. And yeah, then, this month has really passed very quickly. Yeah. I have a... It seemed like uh, 2021 was kind of the longest yet shortest years of my life. Yeah, the days <laughs> the days dragged, but I don't remember any of it. Yeah. So, it was an interesting year. Um so from what I hear in the rumor mill around Cyberpunk 2077 is patch 1.5 might be around the corner, possibly mm-hmm. uh, 
at late February, early March, is the rumor. I can. All right. Speaking of 2077, over over this break, I acquired a PS5, and there's a great big difference between playing Cyberpunk 2077 on PS4 and PS5. I, it's. They should have sent a poet. That's that's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm glad I saved my money when I heard that that game was coming up to uh, buy the best and latest machine so I could play it. <laughs> <coughs> um, but of course, you know... Oh, hey, the... Capricious. Hey, Happy New Year, Sorry, man. Capricious Nature yeah. is one of our regular listeners. He just popped up in the chat, so keep a shout. Yeah. Um, well, well, he's a lurker. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that's according to rumor, because I guess um, CD Projekt Red has been pushing out um, some test code to, I think, Steam, which usually huh. indicates that within the next month, month and a half, expectations yeah. the patch is coming out and supposedly it's going to be a big one um i know there's rumors saying what's going to be in it but a lot of them is just hearsay and hopeful so to me i love how you know certain click baiters try to uh say they know exactly what's going to be coming out when god's honest truth they really don't um, but we'll see. Well, I mean, there's always there's always some guy out there who tries to monetize everything that goes on, uh, clickbait bullshit. Um, well, I don't even remember his name, but there's a there's a dude who does that for GTA Five, who just will any 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 rumor that pops up, no matter how just like off the cuff remark unsubstantiated bullshit he will make a 20 minute video about it um i'm not gonna i'm not gonna dignify him with a by repeating his name but yeah you don't, yeah there's no such thing as bad press so you don't want to give any names yeah uh so there's always gonna be somebody who's gonna throw that kind of stuff out there and I don't know when, but according to uh, various sources, this is the year in which Cyberpunk Edge Runners, the anime, is coming to Netflix. Hopefully, it's sooner than later. It, it's so crazy to me. Uh, I didn't think we'd ever be getting official cyberpunk comics, but now we're getting we're getting an anime like that's that's full circle for me. I it was my love of anime that got me into playing cyberpunk in the first place. Like uh, the people that I originally played cyberpunk with, I knew because I was introducing them to anime at the time. Um, it was at the Kansas City Art Institute way back in 1990. Uh, I had a friend who was going there, and I'd show up with my big box of anime. We'd watch it, and then they invited me to come play Cyberpunk with them. Um, 
so for that it's full circle for me now there's a cyberpunk anime and it's all my favorite things in one <laughs> now if we only can get more novels coming out of uh our talsorian what do you mean more novels there, there were no novels the, the, the hollow man and ravagers i don't know what you're talking about those don't exist no <laughs> no they do exist and and i own them and I think we all do. You're, and that's alone. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Something is better than nothing, right? Something is better... Well... And then you hear the names Bite Boy and Bite Girl, and you're just... I, 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 I get it. It's just when... Uh, when those novels first came out, I was so excited to get my hands on them. And then it was like the author had never actually picked up a cyberpunk book in his life. <laughs> uh. I, I too was excited because there were like a list of Shadowrun novels. And huge, the, huge list. And since I didn't like Shadowrun, it was a great pleasure for me to finally get some cyberpunk uh, novels. Oh, and yeah. as you said, oh, oh, uh, this is what you give me. It's so painful. There's, there's like, a hundred Shadowrun books. There's like three hundred thousand, three hundred thousand D and D novels out there, plus every other fantasy book that basically is a D and D book. Um, Hell, Warhammer's had novels. Finally, we got some cyberpunk stuff, and oh my god! <laughs> I mean, I. God bless Stephen Barnes. He he did his best, but that is the author. Yeah. If not, I apologize. But I think that's yeah, I think that's his name. Um Yeah, I try not to really bad talk any of the official product, but they were not they were not good. Right. So speaking of uh, official products uh, kind of gives us a, a segue into what our tonight's topic or our episode's topic is going to be about. Um, we're going to try to um, every so often do kind of a, an in-depth review analysis uh, of the various uh, Altarsorian books that are out there. <coughs> I know with um, we've already done our take on uh, Cyberpunk Red, um, but since both, I think, the three of us are kind of old-school cyberpunks, we're going to go with uh, what already exists. And I think it is well within the community that this particular book is a must-have, whether you're doing Cyberpunk Red or still playing Cyberpunk 2020. And that is uh, Listen Up, You Primitive Screwheads. <laughs> yes. I mean, it is it is the best book on running a game I've i've ever read it, it's it, it if you're gonna gm a game there are there are very few books that i consider to be must read there is uh robin law's ga uh guide to good game Mast mastering um there are the two suppressed uh, transmission books by uh, and my brain just shut down. Um, 
Come on, guys, help me out here. I can't help you out, man. I, the only book so I've read I... about how to run or be a GM is uh, listen up, you primitive screwheads. And then number one is listen up, you primitive screwheads. I think uh, I just... have dungeon mastering uh, or dungeon mastering for idiots. That's that's not bad. That's mm-hmm. I mean, if you're really starting out, if if you've never tried to run a game before, I would recommend that. Um, but yeah, yeah. So the, um, for those who have yet to read the book or have yet to dive into it. Um, basically, it's a book with several different authors, cyberpunk authors. Um, oh, sorry. Several different cyberpunk GM players. Kenneth Heat. That's that's his name. Kenneth, Kenneth Heat. My bad. I apologize for throwing that in, but I was... No worries. Um, who, back in the day, played cyberpunk. Um, probably have, I believe, some of their credits are they've writ- written... Uh, some game supplements. Uh, so <clears throat> the book is, of course, Mike Pondsmith has uh, a few articles in it. You have Spike or Ross Wynn. My man, Ross Wynn. He <clears throat> also gives uh, some pretty thorough advice throughout the book. Um, Benjamin Wright is another uh, author, I think. he. Uh, I mean, he's he goes back to the early, early days of, of like, he is cyberpunk punk 2020 royalty uh um he's been in it almost i want to say almost as long as mike right uh mm-hmm. craig yep. sheely yep eric uh, yeah i mean it's just it's a the book is written by a cornucopia of longtime rtg staff and people who were just it part of part of like mike's gaming group i think um i mean these guys know what they're t- talking about uh it's the advice they give the book is written for cyberpunk 2020 obviously and that's what they talk about the most but the advice that they give can be applied to any game you run um and that is evidence if you uh put the name out there in different uh fan groups i've actually seen people who don't even play cyberpunk saying this is a great gm's guide it is. Um, and it should be outside it, it, it should be placed on a pedestal. It really should. Yep. So let's start diving into it. So the first chapter is about running long term campaigns. Um, and That is my bread and butter. Yes. That's that's pretty much what I did. And basically uh, <laughs> four of those uh, authors put in their input so craig benjamin uh eric and ross all have various um comments on how to basically form a long-term campaign and i i especially liked um benjamin's approach and the the seven steps as he called it to a successful saga um i agree 100 percent um Benjamin Benjamin approaches the game in a very similar manner to the way I do. So uh, we seem fairly simpatico on, on that nature. Um, in, in particular, his idea of his, his advice on being 
I, like I've talked about it before uh, with Life Path and the GM being an active participant in Life Path uh, and using Life Path as a springboard for so much, so many other campaign ideas and plot hooks and, and just personality for the character in the campaign itself. Indeed. Yeah, and I, I mean, think. Go ahead. My greatest, my, my most, well, I can't say famous, it's only famous among three people. It was a 14-hour game that I ran, and it was all randomly generated from their life path. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it works. You can run, you can run an entire campaign using nothing but life path, all your NPCs, everything. Uh, life path is probably the best tool I've ever. I mean. It, it, what forty years or thirty years ago now, they uh, created Life Path, and it's still, as far as I'm concerned, the best tool for fleshing out a character or a campaign. I've used it for Dungeons and Dragons. I've used it for uh, Warhammer. I've uh, fantasy. I've used it. Uh, I've used it for just about anything you could run. I've used it for Star Wars, for James Bond. The idea, I mean, granted, I I created Interlock Unlimited to be a generic system that allowed you to run all this kind of stuff. But even if I'm just using the life path uh, from the generic Interlock Unlimited set, it, it just helps me flesh out the character and get to know them and like give them a personality beyond some 14-page backstory of bullshit that no GM is ever going to read. Yeah. And... and- between all the authors, I mean, some of the takeaways I got from this chapter was, you know, um, when Benjamin Wright wrote Maintenance, Maintenance, Maintenance. Um, yes. Yeah. That is, is so integral to a long-term campaign. Because uh, right now I'm going on a year and a half with the my current Cyberpunk game. Um, and still there's so much from the players' life paths that still need to be done and also not only that but all the stuff they've have done so far <clears throat> and how you know there's always there's always consequences and there's always repercussions towards anyone's actions good or bad right, right? And, and from a maintenance point of view is always trying to keep that going and also making sure that when you as a gm when you think about for example bringing some corporate to start messing around with the party, you know, what's the motivation behind it? And for example, with the campaign I'm running right now, um, the team hit a facility. Uh, they don't know who the true owners of that facility were. And the true owners are kind of hunting them down in the background, which is yet to be quite obvious to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of part of that keeping the maintenance going of are they slipping up to allow this corporation to find out who they are and find their location and you know <clears throat> that's that's as a GM when you're always plotting out these you know intricate um, intricate plots <laughs> let's just say of 
a a corporation trying to get back at this unknown edge runner group who who screwed them or or did something you know how well did the the, the players cover their tracks and how well are they still covering their tracks um mm-hmm. so you know to me that that one piece of advice with with maintenance is you always want to keep with a long term campaign It's hard. He taught they in the next chapter, uh, or not next chapter, but the next guy who after Benjamin talks is uh, Eric Hesser, and he talks about introducing NPCs who are going to play major roles throughout the campaign. And my, it's hard to create an enemy NPC like a, a like a like an arch enemy type for the PC uh, NPC. You think um, so? I do, uh, because it's not hard to create somebody who's going to be behind the scenes, like the mastermind villain. It's not hard to create that. Anything, though, that's going to ever confront the PCs, it's hard to do that without a lot of GM hand-waving, because the first, first reaction of the PCs is always going to be to kill that guy at all costs. Um, well, and that's okay. That just means you got to get clever with it. Just uh, well, yeah. My my my, my uh, latest scenario. They have met their. I don't know if he's going to be an arch enemy or whatever, but they met the NPC who's going to be the bane of their existence for a little bit. And when they met him, you know, they wanted to you know kill him, but he was surrounded by like a hundred of his people. And when they go looking for him again, he never stays in the same place twice. So, hey, we want to get this guy. Oh, he's not here anymore. <laughs> so they they don't like him. He doesn't like them. Uh, he's probably going to get them framed for killing somebody, but I'll let that play out, see if they can get our way out of that. But we have the enemy NPC who is aware of them. They are aware of him. They know what they want from him, but can't get to him. And he doesn't have a big castle with guards and everything like that. He does, but it's mobile. So, yeah, yeah you want to kill him, but find him from, you know, today and tomorrow, good luck. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the physical. Like, like I said, you can, you can introduce a mastermind who's always going to be thinking two steps ahead of the players. Like, that's, that's not very difficult. Um, but to create the guy who's actually going to go toe to toe with him, like I ran a, uh, a martial arts campaign. Um, and it was hard for me to keep a big baddie that was threatening to the players, like as a recurring villain, because they just tended to like, I mean, players are fucking ruthless. No matter how heroic they try and make their characters at the end of the day, it's the players and they're they're ruthless. They kill their enemies and murder hobos. Murder hobos, um, and it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to hand wave uh, the the bad guy escaping after being defeated or, or stopped or whatever without it feeling cliche or ham fisted. I was um, able to successfully do that once. Uh, there is a 
player who's looking for his girlfriend that some dude stole from him. Uh, not physically stole, but actually won her affection. Nice. And the guy wants to track her down because he's sure this guy's an asshole. He wants to get his girl back, win her back. And when he finds her, she's like a living doll. She has this implant thing on the side of her head. The guy realized, I don't really love her. I just like the body. Well, that's all I'm keeping. So this implant is not only keeping her a doll, it's also linked to him. So anything they do to him affects her. So, oh, damn, that's sneaky. Oh, thank you. Yeah, okay, yeah, you can punch me in the nose and she's going to feel it and you could kill me and she'll die. And, you know. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I might end up stealing that just so you know. Oh, please do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And... But yeah, but that was a way to have my NPC be very hated but untouchable. Yeah, that's that's elegant and beautiful. I like that. That's a good solution right there. Well, the other mechanism I use, and I've used in the past, um, when when I do not want a particular NBC killed, right? Oftentimes, <clears throat> it might be in a situation where. Um, you know, the the team is raiding a facility, right? Mm-hmm. Have, have them start hearing sirens, or they hear a bunch of AVs starting to land. That usually mm-hmm. gets the party to be like, shit, I don't have time to really deal with this guy. I got to get out of here. Um, yeah. And put the pressure on the player to now say, okay, at first you thought this was you attacking. Now it's you trying to get out alive. Um, or always have have the meeting with that NPC in a place that the party can't really kill them, right? You're in uh, a restaurant. Well, I mean, yeah, that all weapons. works, but it's... I, I was talking about more along the lines of, you know, this guy's a great big physical guy who wants to, you know, get in a fist fight with somebody. And I don't know. I have the. One of my main in. In personal meat space players. One of the main guys that I've played with. Uh, for years now. Is just the single luckiest roller I've ever seen. And I've had those. I have in, Oh my God. It's so frustrating. Every time I introduce the big baddie. Like, uh, it was a prison game where, you know, killing was, you, you can't, like a prison gladiator pit where you couldn't kill the guy, but yeah, you beat him to the point of maiming him. And he went up against the champion and took him out the first hit. Like, just, he, he critical hit, critical hit, critical hit. I just, I, I've watched that dude on more than one occasion in front of my eyes, roll three tens in a row. Mm. Yeah. I've I just had players like that. Mm, I've made him switch out dice. I've it, nothing. Nothing works. I've made him. I, I created dice trays just in case there was any kind of trickery that he was doing under the table. The guy driving crazy. Or you have the player who, for whatever reason, and. You know it's a normal dice, and it's just his luck. We'll always like it's roll ten, roll tens for the hits, and always roll ones for for locations. 
Oh, oh yeah. <coughs> and meanwhile, I personally, when I'm playing, am the opposite. I can't. If it's something stupid, I'll roll a 10 after a 10 after a 10. But the minute it becomes important and, like, my character's life or anybody else's life relies on the die roll, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fumble. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fumble. It's yeah. it, it, it drives me crazy. All right. Um, let's bring this in a little more and uh, get back to our analysis of uh, listen up, you previous <laughs> screwheads. Um, <clears throat> so... What other parts of uh, this particular chapter of running a long-term campaign did you really jumped out to you? Um, two other sections I really liked were show the player what it means to be talented. Um, yeah. I, I've done that with NPCs, um, and the players get a hint of how to start playing their character. And then the other section was start out with a big bang, right, which is really start a campaign with either a firefight or some other instant in which, you know, there is tons of actions. Uh, very much so on the first one. Um, showing them what it means to be talented. I mean, if your character professionals, let them experience what it's like to be a professional. Uh, especially if they're beginning, you're going to have to hold their hands to show them what it's like to be their character because i mean they may have a concept in the back of their head but they might not know how to make that come out in play especially if they don't know how to play in the first place or they're new to the new to the genre they might be uh might be just be shy but like cyberpunk places a whole lot of importance on reputation and and style like number one style Style over substance. Uh, so sometimes as a GM, you're going to have to hold their hands through that at the beginning. Um, let them know that if they're if they're a high level solo, if, if they're they've got some renown. They've got they've got to act the part even even when they're not acting the part. Uh, yep. If they've got a fixer, that guy has always got to be on top of everything they got to know everybody they got to they got to have a list of contacts in their back pocket that lets them get to get a hold of whoever they need to get a hold of for whatever situation arises um and yeah. that's why step four finding players because a lot of that can be either damped down or tapped down or the problem eliminated entirely if you've chosen the right players they either have a knowledge of the game or the the genre you don't have to have a knowledge of the game itself exactly oh no but, that's very true yeah that's why yeah. i said step four is my favorite because that that handles so much of the other stuff you've chosen these guys personally or gals you know that however can... uh, go ahead Sorry, i didn't mean i didn't mean to interrupt you i apologize that was just you know my little insert the the only problem with step four the only problem with being able to choose your players like that is you might and i we run into this a lot uh cyberpunk especially in this day and age i mean sure there's lots of new players out there for red but cyberpunk 2020 it's harder and harder and harder to find people with experience uh who know how to play the game who understand the genre and if you're pulling from 
for me, it's always been almost harder to pull people in from other games than it is to just grab brand new players. Because if you pull them in from other games, uh, um, like if you pull a Dungeons and Dragons player into Cyberpunk, there is a severe period of adjustment. Like some some of them never get their heads wrapped around it. Uh, it's such a it's a different philosophy of playing. Um, yeah, and if you have those type of players, that can always be a problem because they're like, well, this isn't how this you know the system I'm normally used to works. Oh, this yeah. is you know, we'll we'll critique the game mechanics um, consistently. And I think it's also a bit of a little bit of a maturity on the players um, to the point where eventually you'd hope that certain player or certain people who do play games and at least I would say <clears throat> I don't know what it's like in today's game scene, but, you know, back in the 80s and 90s when when I was a prime gamer. Um, new games were always like, hey, let's try this. Hey, let's try that. So there was always an excitement of trying new systems where I think once once you're established into a system or that's the only system you want to play, you start having a severe blockage to learn new things. And a player like that cannot disrupt the game um, because they will consistently critique oh why can't i do this or why is that i mean god knows god knows i've been guilty of that myself in reverse because i started out with my first love real role-playing love being cyberpunk when i go and play any other game and i can't create the i can't one shot kill somebody it it irks me no matter how creative i get it just that in cyberpunk, if you get creative, if you're like, I'm gonna stab that dude right in the ear, that has an effect. That you can take him out doing that. And if you yes. play Dungeons and Dragons, you you can't. You can't one shot somebody. You can stab him in the ear a couple of times, and they're like, "Huh? What? You, are, are yeah, you there's, no, there's me. There's no there's no rules for it. There's no uh, there's no set aside for." like attacking an opponent's like weak spots. Um, yeah. A groin kick might as well be a, you know, a punch in the arm. Um, you can, it's the classic joke of you can fill an opponent with arrows. As long as they've still got one hit point left, they're fighting at full strength. Yeah. And I think some of this topic is also covered uh, in a later chapter around uh, GM control and power players. Um, oh, yes. I apologize. I, no I, worries. I mean, it's it's my nature, guys. Uh, to the list I, I kind of out there, diverted I, it to. I rant. We we all are going to rant, but you know, I think this first chapter is definitely a must read um, from all the authors who uh, publish their their critiques because I think there's just different approaches to long campaigns, and I think you can pick and choose some of the ideas to to make it fit and work for your particular campaign. Um, yeah. Anything else you guys want to cover in this particular chapter? Uh, pay attention to your players. It's not on the, uh, it's not one of the steps, but it is uh, in there, you know, who is your leader type? Who is the, uh, the comedian? Who is the guy who's just going to be a pain in the butt 
Yeah, I think you know what, uh, what? Eric Heiser has a, a blurb about pay close attention during gameplay and watch your players. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite things because a lot of GMs will have an idea and just run with this idea. It doesn't matter who you're running with or running over or anything. It's like, this is the idea I have. And yeah, it doesn't matter if the player, if the characters in the game are, are suited to that idea or not. Exactly, and that's why watching the players, in my opinion, is so crucial because they, it may be too highbrow for them or it may be too lowbrow for them, and you have to adjust accordingly, but if you're not watching them, you'll never figure that out. I look at it like this, uh, and, and watching your players, I agree with you. It's so very important. Um, getting on the same page as your players, having your players be on the same page as you, we, we talk about that a lot. Um, you can have your idea for the for the overall theme of the game, and Ross, when you know picking a theme, his advice in this chapter is fantastic. Um, uh, you pick a theme for the game, but at the same time, you have to change. Uh, you have to change what the game is going to be based on the player, based on the characters your your players are running. I liken it to, uh, uh, you've got a movie script. And then you cast the actors. And depending on the actors, your movie's not going to be the same thing. If, uh, if you've got, if you wrote this part for Steve McQueen, and then for some reason Steve McQueen's not going to be available, so you're like, I'm going to go with Burt Reynolds. Suddenly that's a completely different movie. Like they're, they're not going to play the role the same way. Uh, you got you went from it being a fairly serious movie to it being kind of like a goofy action comedy, and it's going to be that way with you know players and the characters that they run. Yeah, uh, you got to pay attention to that. Good analogy. Yeah, if if you're, I mean, if if you're running, if you want to run a super dark, super serious, gritty campaign, you don't want players that are going to be goofy and funny. You can't run... You couldn't tell Arkham Asylum with Justice League International with those characters. It had to be the... It had to be the... The Grant Morrison Batman. The, the dark, gritty Batman. If you bring in the Keith Giffen and J.M. Demetrius uh, Justice League, that doesn't work. That story is not the same anymore. Right. right. So, yeah. As the uh, that military term, uh, no battle planning uh, survived the first encounter with the enemy. That's very true. So no story that you write as a GM is ever going to stay the same once you've introduced your player characters into it. Yeah. Because just you said, you know, writing for Steve McQueen and Burt Reynolds gets it. It goes from being, you know, this thing over here to Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... Or the exact analogy I was going for, Cannonball Run. Cannonball Run was originally written to star Steve McQueen. It was going to be a very serious road race movie. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, I just watched a documentary on it last night. It's, hmm. it's still fresh in the brain. Yeah, I was going to do a kind of a Cannonball Run campaign, but, but the guy I was uh, going to write it with unfortunately passed away. But that's a story for the date. <laughs> 
that is a story for another day. I mm-hmm. I am sorry to hear that. No thanks. All right. Um, getting back uh, to listen up, you primitive screwheads. We're going to move on to chapter two, which is style and atmosphere. And I think this chapter tries to <clears throat> get you into the mindset of what the 80s, 90s future of tech would look like. Um, it's it's definitely worth reading. Um, I, for me, I didn't get a lot of takeaways uh, from this chapter. I don't know about the you other two. I got a lot from it um, because while you it's wrapped in in the trappings of hey. This is what cyberpunk looks like to us. Cyberpunk is this 80s, 90s thing because it was written in the 80s and 90s. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's just what cyberpunk looked like back then. And it was Cyberpunk looked like Blade Runner and Total Recall. That's just the way it was. And the net looked like uh, Lawnmower Man. That's just the way it was. That's that's what it looked like in the 90s. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the trappings that they used to try to describe it. But what they're saying is, you know... Include that style. Don't let your players forget that this is the world that is their game is taking place in. Don't forget to you know pepper your descriptions with these futuristic things, both culturally and technology-wise, um, to let them know that while the world is familiar, it's not the same. It's it's just different enough to be exotic, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, Take them just a little bit out of their comfort zone. And, and yes, yeah, style is important. Style is everything in cyberpunk. Um, and that has, to, that has to be expressed in, in the world that you build and the, the, the examples that you give of what's happening around the character, the setting, the, the atmosphere. Um, we've talked about music and how... You know, if you're going to use music in a, a cyberpunk campaign, uh, don't don't play fucking the rock and roll bullshit that everybody's familiar with. Play something weird that nobody's ever heard. Um, put them on edge a little bit. It doesn't mean it has to be bad music. Uh, it it doesn't mean it has to be good music. It just means it has to be different. You you have to mix it up. Throw them the unfamiliar. Yeah, and I think in a, uh, I forget which later chapter it was, um, maybe chapter eight. <clears throat> Spike goes into music styles and, and and film styles around campaigns. So, oh yeah. yeah, I love that because it gives the example of you are you going to run an anime style game? You know, is everybody going to be leaping off the top of tall buildings and I think throwing stars? I, I like running. Uh, as they call it, cinema verite. I try to keep it as realistic as possible as you can for a role-playing game. So I, I, that's what I took out of that section. It's like, okay, so this is my style. I never had a name for it before, but after reading Listen Up, You Primitive Screwheads, I now had a name for it. Yeah. Um, I can't wait till we get to that chapter. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's... I've got a lot to say about that stuff. Yeah, and I think chapter two is one of the shorter chapters i mean it's definitely wealth it, it's, worth a read yeah 
it's 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 worth reading. It's it's definitely going to give you. Uh, Ross goes into some really fantastic advice in this chapter, but like I said, it's all about atmosphere and um, creating the feeling you want to bestow upon your players. Uh, say like when you describe a, an NPC, you know, be sure to throw in like a piece of cyber or maybe like a glow tattoo, some weird colored hair. Maybe he's wearing a bulletproof vest as a fashion accessory. Just something to let them know that this isn't like just right now today. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. So moving on to chapter three, uh, we got GM control and power player problems. This is the chapter that has a lot of contradiction. <laughs> I love this book, but this chapter here always presents a problem for me and i've spoken about it at length in the past i'm going to speak about it again today um, i'm gonna let you guys go first but okay I'm just throwing that out there well <clears throat> the the main part i like is eric heisman's uh articles on what is a power player versus what is not a power player and then he goes into the different types of power players and gives you an example of them he gives you three ways to handle them one is steering right which is how can you get that power player not to do what he's doing right the next is stopping trying to stop that power player from doing what he's doing and then Mm -hmm. finally the the section of neutralizing which is basically taking that player and making his that player's character worthless, right? Um, yeah. And I think that's great advice of how to, you know, there's always steps of, of escalation, right? So you want to try to be reasonable at the first step and continue doing it. And now, granted, I think back in the day, <laughs> gamers really didn't have a lot of social skills in which they mm. would control. Well- uh, confront a different uh, a player and say, "Listen, man, you're screwing up my game. Can you please stop? You know, person to person, adult to adult, or you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Just let's let's play this game. Have fun with it. I, I get your yeah. opinion. Um, in addition, it comes from the like this was still written in the in the early days in the '90s. It was written mid '90s, early '90s when everything was still dungeons and dragons was still king and other philosophies of gaming were only just beginning to take off so it was very much still like xp repeat yeah and adversarial gms were the norm uh this this chapter presents such a problem this is even with even there are parts of this that i i'll even Ross and Benjamin, who I typically agree with everything about, there are parts that they write in here that I just I look at and kind of roll my eyes at. And I love them both. Like Benjamin and Ross are are fantastic people. Their their advice on games and their contribution to games has influenced almost my every step. But oh, I don't like this chapter of the book. I don't. I don't like the concept of adversarial GMing. 
I, I it bothers me. It's always bothered me. Um, and on the surface, this chapter is great fun to read. It's 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 hilarious. Pardon me. It's hilarious. Um, Mike's take on it is like the well, Mike's chapter is he has a whole it, chapter to himself on how to how to basically screw with yeah but it's basically the extension of this chapter i mean realistically we might as well talk about about both of them at the same time because it's it's the same philosophy um this is more the preamble to mike's chapter uh if you i mean my philosophy is and i get it I, i i get the understanding that like you said um this was written at a time when gamer social skills were not at the height, but looking back, every single problem that these players have, if you've got a problem player, you communicate that. You don't, you, you do it out of game. You like step back and say, Hey, you're being a problem. Uh, you need to get on the same page as everybody else. So everybody else can have fun. Well, um, I, I... you'll have more fun too. I, I see that, right? So so there's a difference between a problem player and a problem character, right? Sure. And I think this chapter kind of blends the two too much. And I think the problem character, yeah. some of the advice in here kind of can apply to a character. And I think some of the, the solutions here can make great storytelling, right? So, for example... Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, is it Charlie Wong? Yeah, Charlie Wong. Um, when he talks about disabling, you know, drug addiction, sabotage wear, uh, bounties, no backup. Yeah, all that is positive, good stuff. So some of that you could take as adversarial GM, you know, oh, why are you doing this? Actions having consequences isn't, I, I don't take that as adversarial GMing. So, however, there's the advice that the players can never rest, that too many GMs, like, took that as gospel. Right. I don't agree with that. Like, like the whole point of you doing, of of your player doing these jobs is to achieve a level of comfort. Like, that's the reason anybody goes to any job. And if you never, if they never achieve any level of comfort, what's the why wouldn't they just at that point, if they're not getting any further ahead in life than they would if they were working at Seven Eleven, why wouldn't they just work at Seven Eleven? I get you. I get you. If you make it too hard and too dark, what's the point? Yeah, like they got a car, blow it up. They they got gear in a stash somewhere, have it stolen every time. Yeah, but this, this like, chapter is not all about that, you know. I know, but it, it it creates that problem that so many GMs take that as gospel. Like, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be done. Players can never have anything. Uh, everybody in their life is going to betray them. And it just becomes ridiculous and cliche. And, there, well, and that's not how relationships work. Yeah, and, and there, of course, there's always that fine line. Because if you if you take that approach as a GM, you're not sooner or later, you're not going to have any players anymore. Yeah. You know, um, how you introduce adversarial life to the character, right, is different than 
it, it takes some finesse to do that as opposed to, yeah, to your point, you know, Mike, Mike's advice. And again, that's a different chapter is very, very adversarial, very. And again, yeah, his motto is, yeah, you know, he, he, he is definitely a guy who, who, who loves that because, you know, his, his, catchphrase is i'm mike pondsmith and i killed your cyberpunk character you know yeah i've been giving out t-shirts with that and all <laughs> that which i mean that's great uh that that's mike's thing um i am very much not that uh guys approach those power gamers who are murder hobos gun bunnies hack and slashers i like you know the whole money aspect of it hey you can be a hack and slasher but by the time you finish paying for your collateral damage, even if you don't get arrested, you've got no money because you couldn't control your destructive habits. Yep. Yeah. I mean, maintenance on your gear, that shit costs money. Um, if you're constantly crashing your car, you got to hell. If you just use your car in a car in a crime, you got to replace that shit. If you use your gun in a crime, you got to replace that shit. Of course, if you use your own personal gun in a crime, you're kind of stupid anyway. Like if that's a registered weapon. Um, but if you're working as a bodyguard or something like that, you have to have registered weapons. You you yeah. have to carry those around on you. So it becomes a fine line of that. Like, which gun am I carrying with me today? Uh, but this idea that nothing you do ever matters, I, I guess, uh, again, if you're going, if you're running like convention style one shot can one shot games i guess that kind of makes sense but if you're running a long term game yeah you're going to lose players left and right cuz but this chapter is isn't just about how to screw with players right it talks about certain players mm-hmm. who who tried to take advantage of the game right so and and there's various right examples of it like where ross right writes about money and he talks about reputation and he goes Mm -hmm. into you know items you know the legality of certain items the you know black market items and the cost of that because there's always going to be a player well this is the listed price and it should be available because it's in the book and it's like Okay, if you actually read the description, this is military tech that is very scarce, yeah, it's and it's ridiculously be... rare. You're, you're not gonna you're not gonna fucking find this at the at the Walmart. You're, it's not gonna happen. Right, and so it, the chapter isn't necessarily trying to play more of an adversarial role. This chapter is more of players who try to take advantage of the system, and as a GM, how do you control that? Uh, right. You know, um, I think Benjamin gets into tech, you know, in the mythology of what tech means. Uh, and he sets different levels, you know, to the point of the last level is fantasy tech that really has no bearing in reality and should never yeah, be introduced into Wars, the game. Yeah, Star Wars, Star Trek bullshit. <clears throat> right. So um, to me from my takeaway of this particular chapter, and again, you know, the, the, the adversarial GM, there are definitely 
chapters in here that get into that. Um, and, and even in this chapter where Eric says, you know, he gives the, the three levels of how to screw with a player, right? You want to steer him away from it. You want to try to stop him from doing it. And then the final step is to be adversarial and just start screwing with him, right? Um, so I wouldn't say this chapter is completely about adversarial. And I completely agree with your point is you don't want to, when you're running a game, you don't want to constantly be, you don't want to play the game as I'm, it's GM versus the players, right? Right. That is not the type of game that will have any type of long-term success. And yes, at, no, at conventions, it, it can work. Yeah, I mean, I won't. It, I won't play under an adversarial GM. It, it just holds zero interest for me. Um, I realize some people take that as a point of pride. Like, this GM is known for killing all his players. Like, total party kills. Blah blah blah. Like, that doesn't sound like fun to me in the slightest. And that doesn't impress me because okay, the players only have what's on their character sheet as attack or defense. That's it. You literally yeah. have the entire game universe. So it's like kicking a puppy. Oh, I've got more strength and power than you do, so I can kill your character. Okay. Right. Was it hard Yeah, for I you? mean, you can drop a rock on my head from orbit out of nowhere. That doesn't make you a good GM. That makes you a dick. Right. That makes you the guy that I whose table I'm never coming back to. And I think there's probably two games that I know of that an adversarial GM can thrive. One is paranoia because that's you know, a animal <laughs> altogether though. But yeah, paranoia I, that works. I think paranoia that completely works. Um, Call of Cthulhu kind of works. Um, I don't know because not... you know, if you ever played it, it's usually, you know, if the players are not smart yet, yeah, you're going to die. Um, but I think those are the two game I mean, systems. Call of Cthulhu's its see. own philosophy in gaming like that, where I don't know if I would really consider I don't know if I would really consider the GM to be adversarial in, in Call of Cthulhu unless they're just completely being a dick. Mm. <laughs> True. But that's really the thing, is I mean, an adversarial GM I'm just always gonna consider a dick. Like yeah, yeah I, that's. I like the yeah. method of control of like money, and as you mentioned, uh, Cyber Smiley, uh, reputation. I had a character once who was supposed to go protect this like little old man who ran a bistro, and yeah, he he killed the bad guys who was, who were sorry, pardon my English, who were plaguing this man. He he got rid of all of them. He also destroyed the bistro at the same time. So after that. He didn't get another protection contract for a lot of a lot of sessions. You know, no one yeah. would touch him. If it, you know, your kid's supposed to be a, a if your character's supposed to be a bodyguard for some kid going to school, and they end up like slaughtering like thirty people in front of the kid, you're never getting a job again. You, it's not going to happen. Hell, if you do so much as like show up to the wrong event dressed poorly, you may not see employment for a while. Um, 
reputation is important in cyberpunk. At the same time, if you are like a professional assassin, do you really want that high reputation? I mean, sure, you want your work to be known, but you don't personally want to be known. You don't want to be recognized anywhere you go. Yep. Right, and that's where Power Gamer, I guess, wouldn't be looked at as a bad thing because, you know, you're doing this whole thing in secret and you want to be able to get rid of your adversary, but uh, where you come in to control the power players, hey, you want to have this big piece of armor and this big gun, it's going to be kind of hard to be stealthy with all that. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Like, there are more than enough ways to curb gaming problems in-game without resorting to being a dick. Yeah. GM fuckery. Yep. And and I I currently in my campaign have two characters who decided certain stats were dump stats, right? So they only have one in. One character uses as a, a dump stat was their luck. Um, so anytime I decide to make a luck roll, like, Hey guys, or <clears throat> you're trying to do something like what's the, you know, just like per, per, per chance, like if something might happen, you know, he, yep. he would question that and I'm like, okay, usually I say, okay, roll a D10, roll it equal or below your luck. Um, and of course this guy has a one. And with my oh luck my rolls, God. yeah. And with my luck rolls, you can also use luck points to kind of use to re-roll ones and, and do some other fun stuff. So every time he, ro- <laughs> yeah, every time he rolls a one, it's a one because he doesn't have the luck to change it. Um, and I, we just got to the point where movement was important, and the guy who has a movement of one is trying to escape. Except he can only run three meters, so the the meeting that they're in is getting assaulted by a, an assault team, and this guy's trying to run away. And guess what? All the other players are running, you know, uh, twenty meters, while this guy is only <laughs> running three meters. And it's like running on crutches. Or I mean, a limp. Or, like, or my my else, solution you know? to this isn't perfect for getting rid of uh people using dump stats but i do i do explicitly express that you know anything below it anything three or below and your character is like fucking handicapped in that in that stat yeah um if you've got a if you've got a one in movement allowance you're like wheelchair bound and not even like able to use your arms to get around like you're blown into a tube to move forward (laughs) yeah well I didn't realize he had a MA of one until he. Oh lord! Until we were like doing, you know, the tactical map of okay, <clears throat> you got because we we're on roll twenty. And it's like okay, you move here, you move here. Okay, what's your movement? And he's like a one. I'm like what? He's like it's a one. <laughs> you can't even stand up from the chair you're in. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there eventually. Hold on. <laughs> but you know, so, along the ground by your lips, like. And of course, his his background was he was from you know, uh, orbit, so kind of makes sense that he probably had some you know, 
uh, I mean, sure, that would make sense. Depletion. Lower movement allowance, but a one? Yeah, well. Characters are, like, quadriplegic. Yeah, one is just like, I really don't give a shit about this. But I think, you know, the party now sees, oh, shit, he's a liability. Because he just got tagged and bagged by the assault oh, team. Why the fuck are we hanging out with Limpy <laughs> McShuffle here? So... That that's also the the fun thing when when players a don't talk amongst themselves, or b decide hey you know what I'm gonna pump up these other stats and leave another stat bad. And there's one other character who has a, an attractiveness of one, but that's only because he had a, an accident in his life path. Okay. You know I'll get that. Like you can like you can play out like an attractiveness of one. That I mean, sure, you can do that, but everyone, like, people are going to react to you. You are a fucking chud. You're, you're like a burn victim. Like. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what he uses as his character portrait, is this guy with, like, burn scars all over his face. Yeah, you are, you are what Wesley threatened to do with Humperdinck in, uh, <laughs> in Princess Bride, like, children... Children scream at the sight of you. Women cross the street. <laughs> People react to you by like, dear God, what is that? Yeah. And I think that's so how... Do you give uh, intimidation? You know, with Interlock Unlimited, that is a thing. Like, the lower your attractiveness, you get a bonus to intimidation. You get a negative to seduction, but it works the other way around. The higher your uh, attractiveness, you get a bonus to seduction. Um, you... Get a negative to your intimidation, because if you're a pretty boy, nobody thinks you can fight because, well, you look like you've never had your nose broken. So, yep. So that's the one thing about power players is power players will do things like that in which they do a dump stat, um, and even though you present and like I presented my luck rules. Of hey, this is why luck is important. If yeah. you're gonna ignore it, well, that's on you. Um, yeah. Or even you know the movement. He assumed that Ma didn't mean what it meant for whatever reason. My favorite um, thing is players who forget to take swim as a skill. I love that. <laughs> I love players who don't take education. At least one. Oh my god! Oh yeah! No, you can't read or write. You don't know what the fuck that sign says. <laughs> I will sell my soul to this corporation for five cents and put it in gold lettering, and they'll think it's awesome because they can't read it. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's get back to uh, listen up, your prima screw heads. We have quite not even hit halfway mark. Um, so chapter four is about cyberpunk uh, sociology. Uh, this is the first chapter in which Mike Pondsmith makes an appearance um, in which he talks about why he wrote Cyberpunk and really gets into uh, what he sees as the world um, and, and kind of what's important in the world. And I think um, there's two other articles from Craig and Ross around... Uh, Basically, it's a chapter of atmosphere, really. Um, yeah, is what I got, from and it's it. good stuff. Like, I, I, I haven't always disagreed uh, with every with Mike's 
personal view of cyberpunk although i love the world he created i love the game he created um he his view of cyberpunk tends to lean heavily towards hyperbole Mm. like uh but it's such a solid his advice is so solid for creating atmosphere uh for creating the world around your game it's hard not to just completely fall into it you know what i mean and I love it because the atmosphere is what separates cyberpunk from generalized science fiction. I mean, hell, when the term cyberpunk was coined, it was because it set itself apart from other science fiction. And the atmosphere is a huge part of that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's definitely a great chapter to read through um, to at least get you in in the mindset of... <clears throat> what cyberpunk is and i think it still holds kind of true today with a lot of this um information is important in this world merging technology making the hard choices you know the man versus machine um it's and, it and... lays out that at its heart cyberpunk is very much probably above everything else it's very much a, about going against the corrupt establishment mm. like that is that is the heart of the cyberpunk movement um using technology to do so or maybe doing so in spite of technology uh but at its heart it's punk yes yeah. that that that's the word that a lot of people forget punk yeah I mean, it always it always freaks me out that there are so many people who are into the cyberpunk genre who are totally on the side of like fascism and the establishment. And like, they're just, they're just all about that. And I, it always like, I like, how can you read this material and, and come away with that viewpoint? It's like people who read like superhero comics and, you know, are racist. Yeah. Like I, or, or misogynist. I don't, I don't know how you can do that. The cult of Punisher is what I call them. See, and even the Punisher, like even the creators of the Punisher, like actively speak against that kind of bullshit, but they just still eat it up like cops and their thin blue line bullshit. Um, and that is not to say that I have anything against cops as a whole, but any cop who like has the Punisher symbol like emblazoned on their car or as a tattoo probably shouldn't be a cop probably not just like frank castle <laughs> yeah all right um speaking of and, and the movement there are so many games that i've seen where the team is being hired by the establishment a corporation to go against another corporation and that's fine but you're still working for the corporation and you're supposed to punk. See, when it comes to individual games, I'm okay with that. Uh, I mean, Ghost in the Shell, you, the, all those characters are definitely working for the establishment. It's still valid cyberpunk. Um, and they still, within that system, they try to buck the, uh, they try to buck the, the fascist authoritarianism that's going on. Um, 
Like, you can have that. RoboCop was a fucking cop. But, like, you can't tell me that RoboCop wasn't cyberpunk. And you can't oh, tell yeah. me that Murphy himself most definitely was anti-authoritarianism. Like, he fought OCP and he fought, you know, the corrupt city hall and all that shit. Like, that's that's what it's about. And that's awesome, changing the system from inside. But, you know, these guys aren't trying to change anything. They're just, you know, grabbing cash and moving on. And to me, honestly, that's valid to me as well. I've run plenty of campaigns where, you know, the game just takes place in that world. It doesn't, like, your personal games don't necessarily have to revolve around that rebellion. Um, oh, yeah, not, not 24. Like, you can play evil characters in, in Dungeons & Dragons. That doesn't mean it's any less Dungeons & Dragony. It's just not what the game itself is about. That you can make it about something else is fine, but it's not. You don't try. You don't present that as, well, Dungeons and Dragons is about being an evil knight who goes around raping and pillaging everything. That's that's not what it's about. Just because you can do that, it doesn't invalidate the game. It just means right. You're you're playing outside the boundaries. And Mike Pondsmith has often said of late, you know, cyberpunk isn't about this or that. It's about saving yourself. You know, yeah, in, yeah, that's. I think that's my favorite Pondsmith quote, honestly. <clears throat> so yeah, you could be working for a corporation. You could be part of the whole corporate mecha- mechanism, but really, are you are you saving your own self for your own humanity? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I put players in very awkward positions and what their choices are. Are they going to listen yeah. to, the, to the paycheck that they're going to get? Or are they going to listen to their own honor, their own, um, you know, creed of what they're, they're willing to do for money versus what they're not going to do and, and then buck against the system? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and every now and then, everybody wants to step outside the norm. They, they want to get a little bit of strange, as it were. Um, so moving on, we're on chapter five, which I believe is the, I think there's 11 chapters in this could be wrong. Nine, ten. No, there's 10 chapters. So we're at the halfway point. So chapter 10 or chapter five is, I think the longest chapter. Um, and it's written mostly by Eric. I don't think there's any other authors in there. No, there isn't. Um, and the chapter's heading is Cyberpunk Combat, or Combat in Cyberpunk, Running Combat in Cyberpunk. Um, okay, Craig Sheely. Sheely. Yeah, Craig Sheely. Um, and he just goes into tactics, combat tactics of the real world and how to use them in the cyberpunk world. And I think this is where <coughs> I think it gets are, into that whole adversarial GM kind of point of view. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, to some extent, but I think what he's trying to say with this chapter, I mean, with cyberpunk, there are, there are very few games, especially in the nineties where real world, like, actual combat tactics we're not talking about like battlefield drone on a map type shit but we're talking about like small unit tactics uh there were very few games back 
in that could actively reflect that. There was Cyberpunk, there was Ger or not GURPS, uh, R yeah, GURPS. Cyberpunk, mm -hmm. GURPS, and... Twilight 2000. To some extent, Vampire the Masquerade. Twilight 2000. Yeah. Um, because of the way damage and actions were handled in those games, they modeled... Yeah, Twilight 2000, that, that probably falls in there, the whole... That whole line. Um, because of the way uh, damage and combat were handled with those games, it, it, it presented a much more realistic uh, philosophy to combat than most games and most gamers were used to. Um, this is really where that whole hit point argument comes in. And, uh, yeah, this, this chapter was kind of necessary for running Cyberpunk, especially to people who were coming in from games like Dungeons & Dragons, or rifts where you just had just ungodly amounts of hit points and could take so much fucking damage uh, before anything actually affected you. Mm -hmm. um, where this like impresses upon you the need, you know, if you're in combat, cover is key. Uh, making quick movements and, and, and picking your targets carefully. These are key aspects. Um, aiming is important. Uh, it's weird that all this that like this whole chapter basically gets thrown out for red. It seems like, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's it doesn't seem to be important for uh, the modern gamer. I guess you would say to have no. that, which is what actually part of what attracted me to it. Yeah, me too. Um, prior to this, my. Uh, my gaming career started off with Marvel superheroes, so of course, completely unrealistic there. <laughs> but it was fun. Don't get me wrong. But when I came down to Earth, I came down to Earth with Cyberpunk, and it's like, oh, okay, this is something I can wrap my head around. Exactly. Uh, it's yeah, and it's a completely different philosophy, and yeah. it and it and it was important to express that. And I think this chapter is also not only for GMs, but I think it's also for players. Um, yeah, 100%. Because... In fact, it might be more for players, because by the time the GM finishes reading the rest of the book, that philosophy will be ingrained into him anyway. Yep. But this this section for players is, all, is, is almost must-read itself, um, because it will impress on players just how dangerous this combat system is and how much how different it is from the games they might have been playing up till now yeah and i think the i, I like in this particular section they, they have a, a section called grace under fire in which they give an optional rule for hey if you're under fire start making a cool roll against the yeah. difficulty if you plan you on firing on back or, or you plan on trying to do anything that you know takes you in the line of fire um, that is some gospel right there. Low, woe to any player who makes cool their dump stat. Did you guys ever take out, uh, not take out, check out the combat experience modifier from the original Cyberpunk 1.0? Uh, 2013? Yeah. Yeah, a very similar thing, which uh, I guess they revamped for this one. But if you're not a combat type character, bullets flying around you, you're not going to be 
strolling around doing this and that as if, you know, oh, I'm fine. I'm No, you're terrified. You're going to be in the corner shitting yourself, fucking, like, eyes closed, <laughs> pulling the blanket over your head, like, dear God, make it stop. Exactly, and that's why, like, they simplified it here by just adding a minus. Yep. So, yeah. Let the player roleplay that shit <coughs> get out as long as they do so. Yes. And, right. uh... And it's a pretty yeah, again, achievable score, like 15, 14, 15, something like that. Okay, you didn't roll it, so now you're too scared to move. Yeah. And that's logical. Realistic. It's totally logical. It makes complete sense. Like, anybody who's ever, if you ever, like, there's a reason that when some shit jumps off, people panic. That's what happens in real life. People fucking panic, unless you're trained not to. Unless you have been in the situation... It's not even training, it's experience. Um, and that's why in the original 2013, they call it combat experience modifier. Yeah. And uh, I actually addressed this with, uh, I hate to keep pimping interlock. No, I don't hate it. I love pimping interlock unlimited. Don't let me lie to you. Uh, but we addressed this in interlock unlimited with the idea that, you know, if your character, the more your character sees combat, regardless of their personal uh, of whatever their primary role is, eventually you will start earning points into combat sense. You will become a combat veteran if you're constantly around when bullets are flying. Even if you don't fire a shot yourself, you get better at it. You get calmer. You get more able to react under fire. And I'll give you a great example and using myself as the example. I was uh, playing paintball. This guy had like a quarter acre. He set up his own course and my heart's just pounding as these little paintballs are splattering around me. And these weren't even bullets. Yep. And I'm just quick breathing. And 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 this was just paintball. So I can only imagine when it's a life and death situation and bullets are whizzing past you at twice the speed of sound. Yeah, you're not going to be Mr. Cool, Calm, and Collected. Sorry. Yep. I mean, at the very least, here's personal experience from me. Uh like, you can react like you don't know what the fuck's going on in the first place. Um, I was way back in the in the 90s. I was living in Kansas City working at a haunted house, and it was after work one night down underneath the 12th Street Bridge, which I don't know if any of our listeners know Kansas City at all, especially during the 90s, but underneath the 12th Street Bridge in Kansas City at, at like 3 o'clock in the morning on a Friday night it was probably not the safest place to just be hanging out after work smoking. But we're sitting there, me and a group of my, uh, me and a group of the people I work with, just hanging out, uh, decompressing, and all of a sudden, we hear some pops and, like the, the brick wall next to us, like, kind of explodes a little bit, and instead of panicking, instead of like diving for cover, we're just looking around like, what the fuck was that? When what we really should have been doing was taking cover and getting the fuck out of there. Yep. Like it, it, it didn't dawn on us till like 30 seconds later that somebody was shooting at us. That is something that happens also, you know, instead of the exclamation point above the character's head, they get the question mark. Yeah. Like what, what the fuck was that? Like, I mean, it, it takes training to be able to react in a logical way when shit hits the fan. Yeah. And, um, and um, they've done studies in which, most humans, when they hear loud sounds or, or something like that, 
they, they get up and look. Yeah, they get up and look and look around and don't aren't aren't known to be like, oh shit, <laughs> something's happening. Look out the window and see if I can see if anything interesting is happening. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I think the one part of of that optional rule that I think they missed was the the combat sense should be added as well. Um, but I think as as yeah. a referee. <laughs> You would be te- intelligent enough to know that, yeah, that, that definitely applies. Um, yeah, yeah. We're getting short on time, so kind of going to jump through some of these chapters pretty quick. Um, chapter six goes oh, into have... what's that? Are we getting? Oh man, yeah. I guess that has been an hour. Time flies. <laughs> tonight is fun. I, I like tonight. Damn it. <laughs> um, we might run over a little, but we'll. we'll Let's at least try to uh, keep it within reason. So chapter sure. six, we get into fleshing out of the life path. And this chapter, I think, has two or three of the authors. The first one is, of course, Mike Pondsmith, in which he introduced plot path, which mm-hmm. is kind of a, an interesting concept and, and mechanism to kind of um, flesh out kind of a subplot, right? Um, based yeah. upon, and, and again, this would target a specific character. I'm sorry, uh, you didn't come in. Failure kind of turned into a robofill right there. Oh, sorry. I was saying uh, that's the one I haven't written a number of years, so I'm just going to have to, you know, write on your coattails for this one. Right. I mean, basically, it's it's just life path that happens currently. Yep. Uh Oh, okay. It's fantastic. Um, it's got a giant chart oh, yes. uh, that just lets yeah. you plot out, you know, events that'll happen in your game. Like it's good stuff, um, especially when you want to get a little bit lazy and just mm-hmm. feel like, you know, sometimes I just I just want some random shit to happen. Can't all be connected. Yep. And again, this um, chapter. Go ahead. Exam. Say it again. Say it again, Phil. I'm glad this is an open book exam. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so I think this chapter mostly d- dives into how you can leverage life path and, and other types of ways in which you can bring character history um, to the character or, or make... <clears throat> make situations happen to specific characters within the game. Um, another mm-hmm. concept I think that's kind of re- reiterated throughout here is uh, the concept of blue booking, which I don't think is too prevalent um, nowadays. No, it, it, blue booking is a great idea, but I think it might be asking more of the players than... You might get lucky and have that one player who loves doing that sort of thing. And I yeah. had one guy like my Marvel superheroes game, but outside of that, most people don't want bookkeeping. They don't want to bother with it. No, it's like you may get that one player who really likes making out the maps and Dungeons and Dragons. Do they even do that anymore. I remember when I like it with AD and D, like it was a big deal for there to be a player like making the maps. Yep. Um, but that's a that's a skill set for a very specific type of player, and it's not something that, like, they tried to make me do that once, and I was like, I don't want to do this. 
<laughs> I, I don't want to do this at all. Well, with the advent of, I appreciate I think, the guy who does, but I'm no good at that. Yeah, I think the the that map the map maker kind of slowly disappeared with final maps and you know, uh, yeah, and then of course getting into the virtual tabletops and the capability there of <clears throat> showing maps. But like for blue booking, um, yeah, just rewriting a character's history. Um, is not something I've ever encountered for my players, right? I've I've had players. Well, I mean, there's the flashback where you where you like basically retcon your character. Yep. Um, which I I I don't want that. I I I I don't personally. I I hate retcons. I hate prequels. Um, even if the prequel turns out to be good, it's still disappointing to me that it's a prequel. Uh. But blue booking, that's basically just keeping track of what your character is doing in the off time. And I'm cool with that. I just, it's very rare you meet a player who's going to want to, one, who's going to want to do all that homework, and two, is going to understand what the framework is going to be. Like half the time, if you get a player who does want to do that, suddenly their character shows up to the game with all this fantastic stuff going on and... Like, oh, I met this rich heiress, and she's gonna she's gonna buy me all this shit. And like, no, she's... yeah, <laughs> I, I have a current or I had a character in my current campaign. Um, the player had to change out that character who had a love affair with a rich heiress, and I'm like, uh, sure. There was other complications behind the scenes, which <clears throat> was never revealed to that character but is probably going to be revealed to the other team uh, as things unfold. I don't want to get too into it because, you know, my players yeah, might be might listening. Be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sadly, there is a very distinct and real correlation between the guys who want a blue book and the guys who want to min-max their characters. That yeah. It, it's... Whereas the, the, <coughs> the, the, the players that I find that are the most creative they want to do that shit in game. They don't want to write essays about it. Yeah. And I think this chapter is another chapter that probably could be shared with, with players. Um, because yeah. it gives some, I mean, it's good. I was just gonna say, it's great advice. It's, it's, it's a great idea. It's a fantastic concept. It, it's just expecting a little too much from players. I think. Yeah. And for me, the chat at the end of the chapter where, um, is it Ross who, who wrote this section? I think it was Ross, yeah. Spike writes yeah. a big, long section in this, yeah. and it's all good stuff. In which he gives um, a sample character. He writes out, of course, the character's stats and stuff like that, but then he gives, he expands upon the life path and kind of writes a one-page novel of the guy, his history... Uh, goes into motivations and, and kind of oh, fleshes yeah. out a lot more of those other life path uh, events like clothing, hair. He kind of uses full form sentences than just short and spiky. Um, yeah. And gives a little more description to every point. He, he, he impresses upon the reader the importance of detail. Not just uh, 
like getting a fuller glimpse of who your character is, why he's doing what he's doing, as opposed to just quick, easy dice results. Yep. And now, uh, and I like that stops characters from going to do a Leroy Jenkins every session. Which is funny because he names his character that his sample character Leary, which is as close to Leroy as it gets, really. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's uh, it's exactly that, um, and it has informed my philosophies towards character creation since the moment I read it, both as a GM and as a player. Yeah, definitely. So it's definitely a chapter I would definitely share with players also. I don't consider it. And again, that's one of the problems with this particular book is great advice for GMs, great advice for players as well. Um, the next chapter is working with the fringe characters uh, in which they kind of, uh, the various authors, and I think three of them or four of them have sections in which what they consider fringe characters, right? Whether it's the rocker boy, corporate, techie, med tech, media. um, And Netrunner. And Netrunner. Um, At least that's Spike's Spike's chapter. Yeah. And I think with Eric's chapter, Eric Heiserer. Heiserer? Heiserer. Heiserer. Um, Yeah, so I I think the the one thing I liked about his section was he broke. Yes, he talked about the the fringe character of the rocker, the corporate um, techie netrunner, but he also gave in to, hey, these are the different types of of characters that you could play. Right. Um, For example, the rocker being a, a brain dance starter. Or the corporate being the team financer, um, and kind of gives them more of a, a a role that could fit within the team if you're running, for example, a, a infiltration team or a black ops, gray ops team. This is, I mean, this is something with, I, I love everything about this chapter. I love each of the authors' perspectives. Um, I like how Benjamin just talks about all the classes. But uh, it, this we've we've talked about this kind of thing many times. The two of us uh, will some characters like just kind of have the game kind of has to revolve around them to some extent. Yep. Um, a rocker doesn't work in a campaign where everybody else is like a hardcore professional. They just like what's he gonna do? But if the rocker is the center of that campaign then you can fit pretty much everybody around them. Um, and you can take one session where it's all about the rocker and everybody's orbiting around that, but then, hey, my roadie, his girlfriend just got kidnapped by the biker gang and now it's circling around him. The rocker is still involved because he's friends with the roadie. Yeah. But that way it's Now, this really only matters in the term of long-term campaigns which is you know anything a lot of people will classify a long-term campaign as anything over four sessions i mean for me campaigns last years they they last until people get tired of playing them um but 
if you're running a one shot, it doesn't matter what the characters are. You you can find some premise for them all to get together and work together. It's uh, one shooting people. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, you can squeeze other characters into other games. Like if if you're running a group of like professional edge runners, it would make sense to have a corporate representative there. Maybe not going on missions with you, but like somebody's got to represent your monetary interests. You know, your fixer gets you the jobs, but who's going to procure like travel for you and all that? Um, cops can be difficult to include in games, especially uh, because if they're an actual cop that means they're going to a job they've got to answer to the law they've got you know their nine to five to go to they can't be just running around willy-nilly with a group of professionals especially if they're a uniform cop if they're a detective they've got a little bit more leeway um i mean there are ways around it you could just say they're undercover blah 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 but even still i think that's they, why it's in important to stress to the group before they even roll up characters of what kind of yeah, campaign but... you have in mind you know exactly well that and, goes back and... to the top says set the tone or you know yeah. set the and you know let the players know what they <coughs> should be expecting communication it's important to, like group cohesion that's why it's so important for the GM to be part of the character creation process um to help ensure that there is cohesion, that these characters can work together. Uh, Will, the the Nomad game I'm running you on, I, I told you that originally I tried to run that with a different group, and as, you can, as you've seen, it's a pretty highly social game. Yep. But that first group, every single one of the players, like their characters were all like these anti-social, kill them all and leave them to the cockroaches people. It was impossible for me to run the same campaign, so right. I just abandoned it and started over with you guys. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, that group was more Raven Shiv than uh, us trying to eke out a, a normal It's society. not even that they were Raven Shiv. It's just that they didn't want to talk to any of the NPCs. They didn't care about anything. Yeah. It it just – and it that was my fault. I was, I, I, I was really loose – uh, and not as participatory in the character creation process as I normally am. And it bit me in the ass. Right. Um, yeah, that's why I am so very adamant about being part of helping the players, like running the players' life path for them and all that. Like, yep. it's, a, it's, a, it's a collaborative process for me. Right, it's, as it should be. You know, you know, just rolling your life path is good, but when you have that GM player inter ex exchange, you, you come up with something even better. Like, you know, one player I had, well, somebody's out to kill you. Well, we figured out it was an uncle who was going to kill him because he has an inheritance coming that he doesn't know about yet. But oh, see, that's good stuff right there. We're just going to kill him off just so uh, he never finds out. And, you know, I'll, I'll inherit the money after him. But thank you. And that was a, it was a big problem with uh, the original Cyberpunk 2020 rules. And it's, I guess Red addressed it somewhat, but there were so many character classes, and again, we've talked about this before, that were dependent on being employed 
for their abilities to work. Like a cop, if he wasn't actually like employed by the police force, he was useless. Um, same with a corporate. Like they lose their they lose their perks of the job when they don't have a job. Um, and that was one of the first things that Interlock Unlimited tried to address is, you know, making these characters still valid even if even if they were freelance or even if they, you know, got fired for whatever reason. Yep. Now like you they're, said they're... this? I'm sorry? You said Red tries to address this? Uh, Red addresses it more than the original rules did, for sure. Okay. Um, right. I think Red addressed special abilities and not being as vague as Cyberpunk yeah. 2020 when it came to the mechanics of how special abilities should work. I mean... <laughs> I mean, for me, the, you... the only two real character special abilities that in the base game had mechanics that worked were combat sense and interface. Right. Um, yeah. And it wasn't until wild side that you saw mechanics on how to use street deal. Exactly. Um, I mean, to this day, you're not going to find any two GMs who agree on what the cyberpunk 2020 charismatic leadership is actually supposed to do. Or authority. <laughs> or authority, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah. And as uh, when it comes to Netrunners, I mean, 2020, they even talk about it in the book. We just, like, uh, I don't, who was it? Um, like, they even state there that, it, like, Netrunners are just ridiculously hard to incorporate as a PC. Uh, they required you to the player and the GM to learn a completely different rule set just for that character class. And that was always a, that is perhaps the biggest and most long running, uh, criticism of cyberpunk 2020 is the, the, yeah. But that's why people love the red net running system, or as I like to call it life and death, Pokemon go. And, uh, (laughs) I like that. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. And so, yeah, it's so simple now, but they curtailed it where you have to now be within, what did you say, six meters? Yep. yep. Like but even so that- even Cyberpunk Red really reminded me of uh, Cyberpunk 2013 and how the net kind of was made, or or the net rules were made for that. You know. Yeah, it's really weird that, you know, 2013 and 2020, they were both written before the internet was really a thing. Back when it was just, you know, dial-up BBSs and stuff like that. There, there, was no, there was no internet as we know it today. Right. Um, and it, it, it's weird to me that with our understanding of how the internet works and what it is and how monolithic it is with red, they decided to go even weirder with it than, than the 2013, 2020 version where now it's all done on the spot. And 
I I I I'll, I cannot wrap my head around how how trade is and international commerce is supposed to work in yeah. in, in the time of the red. I just thank you. Well, thank you. Okay, you destroyed the internet. Okay, um, I I'm in Boston and I need to get something to a guy in California or buy something from. Oh, oh, well, my signal only goes to the end of the block. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, call me crazy. Back to this supplement. Um, the next chapter, chapter eight, is Cyberpunk Campaign Street or Skyscraper. And again, I think this is another very juicy uh, chapter for for referees. Um, yeah. On how to structure your campaigns. It even goes into atmosphere and kind of is a culmination of a lot of the previous chapters. Um, ideas exactly. And, and kind of reinforcing that. I mean, it gets into the heart of what we. It it gets to the very heart of what you want your campaign to be, and it, it, like getting everybody on the same page. Yeah. Um. I can't stress enough how important that is, that everyone understands. Okay, this is going to be everybody. You guys are going to be gutter punks, living hand to mouth day by day. Uh you know scraping by on what you can living by on what you can uh scrape out of dumpsters or steal from others um life is a constant struggle or this is you guys are professionals living the high life uh yeah each you author wear, has a different you take on clothes that. you yeah yeah and of course this harks back to um Phil's comment around the film style of your game, anime versus exactly. um, the cinema verte versus film noir and how to run those. <clears throat> yeah. Is your game going to be high action? Is it going to be uh, more cerebral like or more investigative? Are, are you running? Yeah. Right, right. I've always had an idea about running an all-corporate game, but in that version, I would see it more as a Vampire the Masquerade game where there's a lot of backstabbing, in, insider trading, not a lot of open combat, but a lot of, as you say, cerebral role-playing. It's like, you know, I want to get rid of that guy, but I just can't have somebody blow up his car because everybody knows I hate him. So exactly. finding out a way to get at him without showing my hand. Yeah, I like that idea, the concept of uh, Vampire the Masquerade, except it's a corporate setting. Like that's, that's a neat idea. I like that. Thank you. Malkavians are what? Militech? <laughs> uh, shit, Malkavians? Fucking internet influencers. Yeah. <laughs> They're the crazy fuckers just making money doing whatever nonsense pops into their head. Yeah. Like selling parts in a jar. The one thing in a jar. Yeah. I'm going to sell my dirty bath water. And the one thing um, from this chapter that I have constantly used, um, who was this author? Scroll, scroll, scroll. Might have been Ross. Yeah, Ross. So at the end of the chapter, he goes into the different types of 
characters for your game, right? Uh, a mover versus an operator versus heroic versus super heroic. <clears throat> and he like kind of gives you, hey, this is the type of character it is. These are the stat points you're looking for. These are the skill points you probably should assign. The special ability should equal this. This is how much money they should have, and the rep is this. Um, and I still use those templates today to kind of set my characters, or, or my NPCs, I should say, uh, mm -hmm. when I create them. And that's what makes this book so beautiful is, is, you know, anyone listening is like, this book was printed in the 90s, and yet Will and others like us are still using them in the late, mid-2000s. Yeah. Yep. It ages very well. Anything it else does. from this chapter you guys want to talk uh, about? I mean, we kind of ranted... And I have to cover the whole, you know, what kind of game you're running thing. Um, so we don't need to go back over that other than to say, you know, I love this chapter. I think it's penultimately important, uh, both for players and GMs. Um, yeah, okay. it's... Uh, and, of course, the next to last chapter is the one that I think not a lot of people like, um, which is Down well, and Dirty with I, Mike Pondsmith. Yeah. Uncle Mike's this, Dirty Tricks. Um, this yeah, is this is my biggest point of contention with the book. Is as, as entertaining as it is to read, I just... I don't know. It's it's caused such a problem for me. I don't have that much of a problem with it simply because, let's say, going back to our D&D &D player example, they're used to traps and booby traps and mazes, and this is great because, okay, here's uh, something you're familiar with or some style that you're familiar with, and now go survive this trap that you're going to go walking through, and you take it right from this section of the book that's not really the advice that I have the problem with. My problem is when he starts talking about really playing dirty against the players. Um, the thing is, there are things for a role-playing game to work. There are things that the PCs can get away with that if you want to keep your players, NPCs cannot do. Of course. Um, if, if you have a player who wants to, you know, set up a mile away from a target and snipe them, uh, and, and take them out in one shot before they even know they've been attacked, that can happen. Like the player can do that. Uh, or the PC can do that. If an NPC does that to a player, like you're just walking along the street and suddenly the, your, your, your character's head explodes. That's not good role playing. That's the GM being a dick. If you have no course of defense, yeah. So the, I think the I, specific section you hate in this particular chapter is how to kill the toughest solo. Oh yeah, in I which hate he it. fleshes it, it out just, how to kill some, how to kill your players quickly I, and it's, efficiently. It's hilarious to read. It's it's entertaining. 
but it just it 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 sets up precedent for a relationship between the GM and the players that is just toxic. Um, and I'll die on that hill. As much as I love Mike, as much as as entertaining as it is to read, like these problems with the power players, the the problem players could be solved. Like this is such a passive aggressive way of dealing with a problem that I, I don't see it. I don't see it solving a problem as much as making the problem worse. Right. Okay. Like, even if it didn't happen to me, if I'm, if I'm walking down the street next to another PC and like a air conditioner falls out of the sky and kills that PC dead, even if it didn't happen to me, I'm done with that game. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I still hate, to this day, I will always argue with the person who ran the game in which he um, basically put player against players. And half the players didn't know the other players were attacking or going to attack them. And basically the GM gave one side a lot more power than the other. Um and kind of help them and it was a slaughter right and to me it's yeah like, of course this is not fun <laughs> um so even a game that was played back in the 80s i still remember very vividly being like this you know the gm fucked us and he used other players to do it and that again yes it definitely can leave a long sour bitterness in your in your mouth uh, long after the fact. But I think there's, you know, other points in this chapter. And again, I wouldn't throw away the whole chapter. No, um, of course not. Because there are is some definite advice, like making sure your enemies play smart. Um, and, and how NPCs, certain NPCs, you want to try to keep alive as long as possible as, as a baddie. Um, mm-hmm. and then just, you know, always eh, keep players on their toe to a point, right? I mean, that's always a good thing, but you shouldn't necessarily directly harm them. Like for me, I like to harm the characters, family, their friends, the people around them, right? To cause yep, them yep. more misery than doing any physical attack against them. Kill the yeah, wife and two, or kill the wife and kids to Piedmont. That's, that's <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> now, when you kill the characters, then you just, you know, you attack the characters, you just make them mad. But yeah. when you, attack, you make them mad, but you make them scared that now you have to protect these people. I mean, I can protect myself, I'm fine, but I have to protect these people, which is a whole lot harder because, you know, they're different individuals and I'm just a single person. I can lock myself in no closet. Yeah. I mean, I can keep my eyes on them, but that means I can't do anything else. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, there is, don't get me wrong. Like you said, there is some great advice in this chapter. The give them what they want, take it away. I mean, to an, to, 
to a limited extent, that's great advice. You don't want to do it every time. You don't want to do it with everything because then what's the point of playing? Right. Um, making them responsible for their actions, that's fantastic advice. Uh, like their actions having consequences should be at the heart of everything that they do. Yeah. Um, letting them understand that there are things there are there are things worse than death for their characters you know that's that's good stuff uh it it's just really that one section the whole you know dealing with problem players like that's just that's really the only part of the book the, the only part of or here's how to kill your characters yeah like i don't need advice on how to kill characters I can kill characters if I if I want to just be a dick. I mean, elephant falls out of the sky. It's that there's no difference between that and the the I'm gonna put a landmine under your mattress thing that he's describing in the book. Yep. There's just it's the same thing. Well, like I said, that um, harkens back to you know, okay, you kill the character when you have access to every weapon in the universe. Well, yippee. I mean, you have access to the universe itself. Right. That's at, what I said. At that point, at that point, your agent Smith making Neo like his nose and mouth no longer exist. He's slowly suffocating in front of you, and he can do nothing about. It. Right. And so that think, was an awesome game. Thanks. And I think that's where I can't wait to play with you again. Never. The the misconception of overpowered player or yeah, overpowered characters can happen. Um. And one of the criticisms, I think, for, for Cyberpunk 2020, um, I've never really had an issue because there is always something that's going to be overpowered. And as a GM, you always have that tool. And you can always rein it yeah. in as well. Um, whether the players I mean... like it or not <laughs> is another matter. As a as a GM, I, like you said, I've never really had a problem with overpowered players. I, I mean, at least not with Cyberpunk. It just sure they can get the best equipment and they can armor themselves up really good. There are ways around all that shit. Um, and if they're constantly. It, they can't carry around a fucking antimatter rifle on their back and be invited into, you know, the fancy restaurant. They can't yep. be wearing powered armor and be allowed into the nightclub. Like that's the I don't understand how this ever really became a problem for people. Um I think because most people run their game as combat, 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 and when you have a where there's no social skills that are actually important. Guys are going to pick solos, armor them up, and then they become a problem because your only style of GMing requires people to be vulnerable, and these guys aren't. Yeah. Yep. I think it also boils down to, again, people coming in from playing Dungeons and & Dragons and other like more prototypical uh, role-playing games where, you know, Nobody's keeping track of just all the crap that a player might be carrying around with them at any given moment. Um, yeah, and you, you always can put your players in a position where you you're not necessarily taking taking the stuff permanently away from them, but you're temporary. Like yeah. in order for you to yeah. enter this club, guess what? 
You get a weapon scan. They remove all your weapons. Okay. Yeah, that's, a that's a standard in my game. If you yeah, go to that's every nightclub you ever go into, they're not going to let you walk in carrying weapons. Yeah. You're going to be drinking. You don't want drunk people with guns. And I, I have a current rule that says any SP over 14 that you're wearing, people are, can consider it combat gear, and some places aren't going to allow you to wear it inside their facilities. So yeah. check yourself at the door. I mean, it goes against cyberpunk canon, but in my game, like fairly realistic rules towards firearms or fairly realistic laws like concurrent with today exist. Like you, uh, without special gun dealer license, you cannot get a, legally get a hold of fully automatic weapons, which is right. not going to happen. And that's uh, where um, the protect and serve comes in. And to a lesser extent, the interface magazine, which uh, focuses on cops. Yeah. They're, there's things in the universe you can use to legitimately tell these players, no, you can't have that, or no, you can't carry that. Yeah. I mean, or you can carry it, but every single cop you come across is going to immediately, like, stop you and question you. Um, security is going to flag you immediately. Like, even if you're just walking by a building, they're going to be like, oh, my God, look at what that guy's doing. Um, people are going to cross the street to avoid you. You're not going to be moving inconspicuously. Yep. So mm -hmm. there's always ways to curtail any player who gets out of control um, with in-game, you know, situations. So Exactly. So now we're on to the last chapter, or at least the chapter before it gets in... So the last chapter is actually the bios around uh, the various authors throughout the book. But yeah. chapter 10, I consider the last chapter, which is the introduction of new rules uh, to the game. Yep. So the first is High Noon Shootout. I tried using this uh, for a couple games. Uh, the one thing I liked about it was that even low caliber weapons still cause bruise damage. Uh, if you were yep. wearing soft armor. So, you know, a point here and a point there can add up very quickly. Adds up. Um, and the thing they had in the original 2013, they had concussion, uh, concussive rules or blunt trauma rules. Yep. Yeah. Which made complete sense. Okay, yes, that bullet will not penetrate my armor, but it will hurt like a mm-mm-ucker once it hits me. Yep, and the only reason why I kind of stopped using it is because of the conversion that was constant, you know. Yeah, I mean, it. you don't want to use it these rules all the time. Uh, it's just, it adds a lot of bookkeeping, but there are situations where it's going to be appropriate, and you're going to want these rules in your pocket as a tool, uh, and they're good. I mean, they're they're solid rules. Um, getting hit with a, with a getting hit, even if it doesn't penetrate, that it hurts. Yep. It yep. fucking hurts. Um, and that's why we use that cool rule that that difficulty fourteen fifteen rule where, damn, that hurts. I don't like that. Let me run away because yeah, it didn't kill me, but I don't want that to happen again. Absolutely. Yeah. I was actually thinking, and and I kind of got the idea from uh, Cyberpunk Red to apply to. To 2020 in which if for damage you roll 2d6 or two sixes in the damage you know you're taking one bruise point 
Um, yep. If you're soft, you know, for well, it depends on the pot and the caliber and of course the armor type. But if you roll two sixes, mm-hmm. you're taking some blunt damage, whether whether it penetrates or not. Um, so I, I kind of like that little bit of a rule versus what what red does with the critical. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> um. Robble, 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 robble. The next rule was the detailed explosions, which I still use to this day. Um, Absolutely, I converted that almost whole hog into 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 base interlock unlimited stuff. Yeah, I think even if you don't care about how to make campaigns or whatever, just this one section is worth the money to buy this book. Yeah. Um, and then Saturday Night Slugfest, which kind of gets into new types of uh, mostly martial arts uh, mm-hmm. attacks. It, 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 it was the, it's the middle section between the core 2020 martial arts and then the revamped martial arts from uh, Pack Rim, um, but it introduces the idea that not every attack has to be life or death. You can you can make a knockout attack, or if you get an opponent down, you can make a coup de gras to just end the fight immediately. Yep. Um, it's I very much like the Saturday Night Slugfest ideas. Um, uh-huh. I very much included them both when I first redid the, uh, like when I made my original expanded martial arts list. Um, and then again, when I updated it, and then when I made it for Interlock Unlimited, uh, I incorporated this stuff into it, like almost whole hog. Yep. And then the two other sections. It gives us like four martial art, four new martial arts, which yep. the kung all fu good I stuff. Like. They're all very unique. Yeah, the kung fu. I one of my players really liked. Um, Equilibrium. Who would? Yeah, exactly. The Equilibrium. I think this <laughs> didn't this come out before Equilibrium. Oh, by like yeah. a decade. Uh, um, about a decade, but. Well, I don't, I don't know. It felt like a decade, yeah. but it probably was only like five years. Uh, but originally, <laughs> when it came out, it was supposed to replicate like John Woo, Chow Yun Fat, blah 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 blah, like point blank fucking gun shooting, uh, two fisted awesomeness. And of course, the last two pages of this chapter, which I find kind of funny that they would even think about adding something like this when you know the game was still in its infancy uh is beyond basic skills which listed all the skills from supplements up to that point in time and the complete role list uh, oh lord which you know um was also another kind of funny thing and even with the complete role list they didn't have all the roles that no but I mean, they included stuff from the interfaces. They didn't get the yeah. stuff from the Punk Twenty Ones. Um, well, also like all the media from um, Jesus Christ, Live and Direct. Yeah, I don't think Live and Direct was out at the time. Yeah, that's yeah, that's another thing. You know, 
was that there's a lot more source books that came out that I, I, expanded these lists. I want to so. say it was three years after this that Live and Direct came out, maybe four. Yeah. So for me to but, have uh, them publish these two lists was kind of funny in that, you know, they weren't done yet. Um, I mean, most of these roles... Honestly, looking at this role is why I decided to just revamp how how they work in Interlock Unlimited because most of them are fairly redundant. Mm. And they're just mixing the roles together at that point. And I, my philosophy was instead of doing this, why not just let them like, mix and match the roles as they see fit? Yep. A lot. Uh, Equilibrium came out 2002, so it was eight years. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> so that's um, it for listen up, you primitive screwheads. I kind of like uh, prowlers, though. I mean, yeah, I do too. But you know what? With Interlock Unlimited, sorry, to, I'm not sorry to keep pimping it, but I'm gonna pimp it. That's what I do. Uh, you can create that prowler. Like that's actually thief is its own role there. But yeah, yeah, and and FYI to everybody who's listening, one of our future uh, episodes is going to be an AMA of the Interlock Unlimited with uh, yep. Wisdom here. He's going to answer any questions around that system. Um, I will. So maybe we can get Seth Serkowski uh, to uh, join us because I know he loves your system. That would be fun. We need to ask him the questions about Ravagers and Hollow Men at the same time. <laughs> uh, in another future episode, we're going to be doing the same thing with uh, Will's um, applications for yep. for the game. Yep. Very that's, much looking forward to that. That's another plan. Um, we're also looking to get more guests this year uh, to join us. Um, Phil, of course, you're always welcome to pop in at any time. Um, thank you, thank you. So... That the offer is open, and like I said, we're going to continue to uh, do si- similar shows on this, in which we take a, a book and we'll break it down into uh, our analysis of it, what was good, what was bad, um, what was useful, and, and what we kind of still use today. I think we started with the the, the best of the best, um, and I think it might be all downhill from here. Um, yeah, I mean. Not necessarily. We've still got some good stuff out there, but we definitely covered the best, the best rule system out there. Period, or the best rules explanation, GM guide, blah blah blah. Right off the bat, you're right. Um, I mean, it, it's yeah. If you don't have any idea how to run a cyberpunk game, buy this book or get the PDF or whatever format it is in the new modern age. Hell, if you don't know how to run a game, period, but get this book. It'll teach you. Yep. All right. Um, anything else you guys want to talk about before we uh, wrap it up? Uh, just thank you, everybody, for showing up. Uh, yeah. We're looking forward to this season. Um, we are hoping to have a much more structured uh, structured form- format than we did last season where we just kind of... <laughs> Came up with raved. a topic uh, off the top of our heads for the yeah night. almost on the spot. 
Uh, also, like to uh, thank uh, Cyber Nation Uncensored for hosting us. As usual, yeah. thanks, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Um, please, everyone. Uh, we're looking for even more uh, listener interaction. Um, if you have any questions, you can submit them here on the Data Fortress Twenty Four Twenty Facebook group, uh, on Discord at uh, Cybernation Uncensored. We've got our own little section there. Um, or you can email Will or myself. Uh, directly. Um, yep. Our email addresses are readily available at our sites, or I can just give it to you now, wisdom000 at gmail.com. Will? Uh, Cybersmiley at cybersmiley.net. Well, I think that about covers everything for this yeah. episode. Yep. Yeah. All right. Yep. So we'll talk to you guys uh, the first Wednesday of next month, which I believe might be in two weeks. So, enjoy your night. Yep, thanks for listening. Bye. Yep. Good night, all.